Welcome back to Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron, Episode 4, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, Chapters 15 through 17, Bobaton and Darmstrong, uh, the Goblet of Fire and the Four Champions. And back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wes Chance. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having us back. Hi. It's good to have you back on this special Christmas episode, uh, just about a week before Christmas here, and just before we take our our, our hiatuses, our hiatai, and <laughs> go off to our, our various hobbit burrows and hogsmeads and the burrows, and, uh, or go through various uh, cupboards or not cupboards, as it were. Um, and so I'm looking forward to talking about these two new schools, this Goblet of Fire thing, and this, again, motif of three and four being upset, or three being upset by four, and what that means. And uh, well, so uh, what did y'all, and also we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Christmas gifts we would like to receive in the form of charms, and a little bit about that. But so where would y'all like to start today? Well, I I mean, just looking back at, at Bobatons and Durmstrang, um, which I, I like that pronunciation. I don't know if it's right, but that sounds good to me. Um, I've, I think I've mentioned before that I really sort of missed in these books uh, a sense of the bigger uh, world, right? It's, it's very um, England-focused or, or UK-focused anyway. Um, but, but in these chapters, uh, we do finally, I mean, in this book as a whole, with um, all of the sort of international component to it. But in these chapters in particular, we do kind of get a sense of that, um, that international, those other wizarding traditions and cultures out there. Um, so I was kind of interested in that, uh, interested in, in the language aspect of it. I, I didn't look up Bobatons, but just looking at the word, I can take a, a guess at what it might mean. And Durmstrang, that's, that's a pretty interesting allusion as well. Um, to uh, a historical cultural movement. Um, but anyway, um, th those are some aspects that, that I was particularly keen on, on discussing with you guys. Um, does that sound like an okay place to start? Yeah, and I just wanted to jump in with Bobaton, I think clearly comes from sort of French and means something like pretty stick. So it's supposed to be meaning something, the idea that these are beautiful, these people are ornate, and they come in an ornate sort of golden Pegasus uh, drawn chariot, a Cinderella-like image out from the sky, and they come from the sky, whereas Darmstrong comes from below. So there are a couple of antimonies, and uh, these are drawn out more, I would say, even in the movie, where Darmstrong is red and Bobaton is blue, and that's maintained here. Darmstrong is Germanic in speaking. Uh, Darmstrong is, in fact, a Germanic word, and you could tell us some about the movement. And Bobaton is a French Anglo world word. They were against each other in World War II, but allies to the Brits, and that's interesting to think about. And in the movies, uh, only girls come from Bobaton. It's like they clean up the mythology somewhere, make it more mythological. And the men, uh, or Darmstrong only brings men, but that's not how it is in the book. And also, not only does Durmstrang come out from the sea in a ship, so does uh, Bobaton come out from the sky in a, a, uh, uh, a chariot, a home sort of thing. And, and also, uh, the Durmstrang contingent breeds fire, whereas um, the uh, Bobaton uh, girls are, 
they seem to be drip, drifting water, at least in the movie. But that's not how it is. It's almost as if uh, the movie is like the imaginary idea of how each of the house would be that the real characters have in the books. Because, you know, you have the Bogotan people shivering. You have the Victor Crumb has a cold for uh, uh, Durmstrong. It's all very normal. Uh, and, uh, well, I just wanted to mention those antinomies in, uh, and, and uh, symbolically what these these new schools might also represent, as well as sort of their international sort of presence. What do you think, Sarah? I mean, I I too found like the names interesting. I don't know that I have much more to, to share. Um, I think, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the teachers for each of them are interesting. Um, and, uh, I think, Alex, you sort of prefigured this in our conversation last week, but about um, some of the, like, maybe more guttural or earthy um, uh, sounds of the English language can be found in, like, the way that they speak from Durmstrong. Um, Wes, I'm, I'm, I, I know, I think I know what... Um, artistic movement you're talking about but you know for the listeners um can you maybe talk a little bit about what you saw in the name and how that relates maybe to what you saw in the book or yeah not really sure yeah yeah no i all i know is that derm strong uh like lots of german words is is like a combination of of separate words and so the derm part is storm and the strong part is stress i might have that backwards but anyway so it's translated as storm and stress uh and it's it's a kind of romantic era movement um of of this kind of desire for something that's more uh, dramatic more um like deeply felt um i don't know the specifics honestly uh, beyond that, but that it it sort of really fits with the way that the um, the Durmstrang students are presented uh, as being um, uh, coming out of out of their their sort of sunken ship uh, mode of transport, right out of out of the deeps that they, um, as Malfoy points out for us, right they uh, have a much harder line on the. The racial component, or or the the sort of the magical, non-magical, um, like racism, essentially that we see at play here, that they uh, they don't allow mudbloods in their school, right? Um, so there's that sort of darker element of the nationalism um, that comes out of of that romantic period, um, and and with that, like the very interest in um, languages and like roots of languages and starting to trace mm -hmm. those. Mm -hmm. A lot of that sort of comes to the fore around that same time as people um, sort of seize upon language as a, a great kind of um, uh, drawing, like a, a force that would draw people together uh, around to mm -hmm. bind them around a cultural identity, right? Um, and, and so in the- Do you think- Oh, go ahead, yeah. No, I was just gonna say, just to underscore that, I mean, between the two visiting headmasters, Karkaroff is the one who is in uh, chapter 17, I think, the most 
um, resistant to the idea that Hogwarts gets two champions. Yeah. You know, like the way that he spoke about it was that the tournament was like, in a way, like to bring honor to the school, like just that it was the this collective, it would be this collective victory, like a win for the one would be a win for the whole. Whereas I don't think that that's exactly the vibe that I got the way that Dumbledore was describing the tournament. I mean, maybe I missed that, but, um, you know, a $1,000 prize is a very individual prize. It's, I, it's not as though uh, some victory reward, you know, serves the school um, in the next, in the next round. I don't know if that makes any sense. I'm just want, I'm sorry to interrupt, but oh, just to underscore your point. That's a really interesting point because it makes me wonder to what extent, because uh, there is a way to read Harry Potter as sort of, uh, the figure of the hero that can be embodied at any point as if he is not really a real character so much as sort of like a, a figure like Jesus or like an archetypal figure that can be embodied at moments. And so the fact that he's the fourth champion and I might be, eh, well, and the fact that he's the fourth champion might represent something like Hogwarts and playing host to this, uh, to this competition wins twice similar to the point you're making, but different. And that just hosting this is itself a win for civilization, is itself um, huh. uh, uh, the, like the height of civilization, its own reward. Hmm. Um, and that that's what Harry as a champion might represent. Whereas the three normal champions, sort of like John as like the synoptic extra gospel, whereas the other three kind of get the facts right. Are you know to to or at least to whatever extent mm. it's you know true within that sphere. I don't that, know, but I'm that's trying. Really, that's a really interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I I thought about that too with respect to Hogwarts. What's going on with them having the two champions? And I kind of feel like you know Hogwarts seems to be the most diverse of the three schools. You know, within Hogwarts, it has the four houses. We don't right. get a sense that e either of these other schools has that level of in, like internal diversity and embrace of um, sort of individual uh, specialties, right? Which sort of bring you together with other people. And then um, you, you all are sort of bonded within this larger overarching, you know, the school as a whole, right? Hogwarts just seems to have a lot more going on than either of the other two, which, which yeah, they do seem kind of um, ju juxtaposed against one another, Durmstrang versus Bobaton, whereas, you know, Hogwarts is kind of its own thing. And then so it, it sort of makes sense then that within Hogwarts, they'd have um, multiple champions, especially when you consider that one of those champions is Harry Potter, who sort of breaks the mold in all sorts of ways um, to the point that, you know, someone like Snape deeply resents it, uh, even his best friend Ron by the end of, of this reading that we did for today, Ron is, is really starting to feel that in his own way, um, uh, that, that sort of mistrust, that um, offense, right? Taking offense at, at Harry being so special. Uh, in a, it's a really, that's one of the most interesting things. See, this is why I feel like Ron, you know, you guys don't give him enough credit, Sarah, <laughs> but uh, he, he's a super interesting character Boo. here. 
that's sort of interesting because I do want to, because I think often people just start to trace the sort of line of the budding sexuality of the characters in this, this story. And I think that is there because you have this obviously very masculine Karkaroff driven Durmstrung force and even like that masculine Germanic uh, nature. In fact, the Germans call their land the fatherland like the Romans did and uh, after the Roman convention and that's why they adopt the eagle as well um, and why we adopt the eagle in America, by the way. Um, but um, Bobaton and be more French and more beautiful uh, uh, language. Their champion is a, is a woman and something interesting about them is that they have hybrids they, they are more liberal in that they allow a hybrid headmaster, which is not even true of, uh, which is not even true of Hogwarts, right? We have Hagrid, who is half giant, half man, who is on the staff, but even that he is looked down upon by Malfoy, the Slytherin contingent within the Hogwarts. But we have someone who is half, I believe, giant risen to the highest position at this school. And then, of course, their champion is half Fila, which we'll find out later. And so I, I, I think it's, it's also interesting to note that these characters are starting to become more masculine and feminine and see more elements of masculine and femininity, but that we see one element of budding masculinity in men is like uh, recognition of inferiority or resentment of the success of those around oneself because man, Ron, He's, you only, like, while he dotes on Crumb, only because he is good at Quidditch, he claims that uh, Hermione only likes Diggory because he is handsome, ostensibly because Ron is not handsome and feels like her calling Diggory good means she is saying that Diggory is more handsome than Ron and thus she likes him more. And that's such an interesting, confused issue. And the fact that there's a further distinction between Ron and Harry, Harry getting, again, more and more famous and incredible, Ron, uh, it's like indirect proportion with Don, Ron's uh, budding or blooming resentment. Yeah. Yeah. We, we get, yeah, in that moment um, that Ron claims that uh, people, you know, like Hermione only looks up to uh, Cedric Diggory because he's handsome, right? Uh, we get a mention there of, of Lockhart, Yes. Um, it's it's one of the few allusions I think to previous books that that goes without any further comment from the narrator. That's just like it's just kind of there for us to um, to note if we've read it recently enough to remember who Lockhart was and what went on with him, um, which we do, you know. But it's it's really I think it it does it does strike me that Ron recalling that in this moment. Um, it, it sort of like throws his character into, into, um, sharper relief, as you say, right? He, he becomes a kind of foil for these other characters who are, are gaining such stature before our eyes. Um, and I feel like in a lot of ways, I really, um, could relate to Ron more so than I could relate to any other character. You know, sure. except maybe Neville or Professor Bins or somebody, right? But, but like, because but Ron is so, you know, like, he's sort of like the straight man um, in the whole thing that you, you can, he's just a, a normal dude. He likes, you know, sports and he's, you know, he's not particularly good at anything, really. Um, he has been loyal 
uh, very loyal and very tough, you know, and stood by his friends. But, but once he feels like his friends aren't standing by him, well, then that just makes it all the worse for him, right? And you can, I think you can really feel that here. Um, in a way, I, I again would compare him to Snape, you know, that he feels sort of left out, sort of uh, left Ooh. behind or betrayed, you know, and, and Snape for me is, Snape is the most interesting character in the series. So, so anything that makes Ron a little more like him is, is, is a plus in my book. Well, two things about that. I, I, I'm interested to what extent this is a call to distinction for Ron and that he has sort of been reveling in sort of a participation mystique, uh, sort of the, the victories of others, like the Chudley Cannons and his family, like Percy and Bill and Charlie and uh, Harry, his friend, and Hermione. But now he is starting to sort of differentiate and realize these are their victories, their talents. He needs to sort of do something for himself. But I also want to ask about Hermione and her budding political aspirations and how she's going about it. And also the fact that Hagrid, Fred, and George, all based on experience of the house elves in the kitchens, which she does not have, uh, flatly refuse to join Spew, or excuse me, S-P-E-W, saying that it would be a crime because some house elves like working down there. And she says, but what about Dobby? And even Hagrid says, oh, there are weird ones in every breed. Um, so uh, what do we think about Hermione continuing to, I mean, she's really very much developing in this direction now. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think one, one of the things that her activism with SPEW reveals is maybe the the trajectory of like um, social awakening or social like the various stages that someone goes through to maybe become genuinely socially conscious because um, I think there is there is a stage at which you um, you think you know what's better for the whole right or sometimes um, uh, you mistake your moral judgment for the judgment of others. Um, so, you know, and, and, and to me, like we've said all along that Hermione is so advanced, like, I'll be honest, this is like what she is experiencing and, and kind of embodying is something that my friends from college and I, we were all guilty of, you know, like right. surely we yes. know what's best for this one large swath of people that in our estimation is, um, is impoverished or oppressed or whatever. But like, I've never walked a mile in their shoes. I've, and I've never like passed the microphone, you know, like that's something that, um, that's like pretty popular nowadays in like activism circles is this idea that like, you don't need people from positions of power to speak for you or be your, your voice, your vocare for you. You need to like pass the mic um, and, and like sit down, shut up and listen. And um, given that I, I like, I don't necessarily think that Hagrid, Fred and George are any more right, but to, to like resist her SPEU um, membership, you know, to, to say like, well, listen, I've talked with house elves. Cause like, I'll be honest, like that's an argument that was used 
that's an argument that's used to perpetuate a, a lot of, of like oppressive systems. Well, like they like it or it's good for them or, um, you know, we give them holidays or uh, it, it just, it, <laughs> their argument isn't good either. Right. Um, but, but the, it does expose a flaw in her reasoning or in her, like, I don't know, in her development here. I'm not, I'm not certain that, that either one of them are present. I think they're presented as like ways of thinking about injustice, right? Like hers is coming from this moral framework and she's applying it to what she sees. And theirs is, here's what I know. And um, I, I think theirs is more of a, if, if it doesn't seem like it's broken, I'm not going to try to fix it. I think Hagrid is the most interesting here because of the four of them, he and Hermione are the most likely to experience prejudice on their own because of who they are. Um, and I don't know, I think for Hermione, it makes her acutely aware of the ways in which other people are kept lower and maybe by virtue of Hagrid's uniqueness, like he's not around a lot of other people like him. He doesn't really seem to pick up on the ways in which he is put down by people. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he's just so, big and beefy like he just doesn't care but he doesn't really seem to to feel prejudice the same way that that Hermione does I don't know if that makes any sense but it's, it's interesting because what you said I mean it's so insightful and interesting but Jean Piaget a constructivist psychologist uh, actually says and writes in his developmental stages that humans people go through a messianic stage and it does seem to be that sort of college stage especially at say a catholic or a jesuit university like you and i went to you at notre dame and me at marquette where that's actually really promoted right that spirit of going out there and doing something and helping the world and so there's sort of a conflation between doing good and um you know learning how to do good right? Because sort of the spirit of wanting to do good is rewarded without sort of learning just how difficult it is systemically Absolutely. to make something better. Like, like there's a big difference between me wanting to heal people and becoming a psychologist. Like, like I just, I have to build that skill. Just, I actually want to help and, rather than hurt somebody. And I, I think, I just think that think, it's very br brilliant what you're saying that, that it's like there's a lot of the right intention going around, and especially when we were young, and especially in our generation that's now getting to its early 30s, that, um, that uh, perhaps, perhaps the focus was too broad, and we need to, you know, we need to, you know, maybe bear down in a deeper way, in, in a smaller way. Think smaller. Well, and, the, and this isn't, that. this isn't to like, to, I mean, I'm a FJV, a former Jesuit volunteer, and like, I I would never, I would never go so far as to suggest that you know service programs and service experiences, especially ones that are paired with learning, and especially when they are like really well organized, prepared, and executed. When when there's somebody in a position um, to like expose young people to like systems and their role in them and you do learning before and action and then reflection and, and, and most of the action in, in all honesty, like it should be listening 
and the ministry of presence and all of that, which is all of the stuff that Hermione is totally forgetting or doesn't even know. Right. Right. Um, but let, but like, uh, I've just, I've seen a lot of like mediocre service programs, right? right. Not, a, not a lot. Certainly the ones at Gonzaga were, were really good, but um, where like there's this substitution of my voice for their voice and it's born of pity and not born of a sense of um, like kinship or solidarity that like if Hermione could articulate my liberation is built and tied into theirs and I am, you know, hers, it's, it's, it's not from a place of, of, I, at least, I mean, I just, I'm, I hesitate to be critical of her, but, but, but I think, I think part of the process of, I mean, like I'm interested in this, in this psychologist that you mentioned, Alex, because I think part of the process of, figuring out like the right way to, to contribute to like the common good means going through this process of seeing oneself as different from the other that you are attempting to serve. And then kind of almost being surprised in your discovery that you are actually no different than they are. And that like that kinship is really, it seems like something that's born only out of error I don't know if that makes any sense, but that like, uh, I discover that I am intimately tied, my, my welfare, my salvation is intimately tied to that of someone whose society would not put in the same box as me. And it's almost like I learned that really only fundamentally by at first overlooking it. And then, and then may, so maybe that messianic, um, that messianic impulse is something that like, I don't know that there's something good about that. There's something um, healthy, maybe particularly if it is, if it is, um, if it is per not, uh, if it is temporary, if it's then checked by something else. I mean, I, this is all getting quite theoretical and not necessarily, I'm not really just talking about Hermione. I'm more talking about myself, but um no, yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting too, like the differences between uh, Hermione's motivations for wanting to free the elves. Like, it yes. seems to me that she, she's struck by, in a way, like you're describing, like she's struck by her own complicity, her own unaware benefiting, like, from these elves the whole time she's been at Hogwarts and only now realizing that they're there at all. Right. And that seems to be part of what's so shocking to her. Like she stops eating for a few days there. Um, and, and again, Ron is there to point out like her hypocrisy about saying, okay, like I found a better way to help them. Oh no, you've just gotten like hungry enough to need to eat. Right. Um, but so on the one hand, there's that, there's also like her copious reading, you know, like she's very steeped in history and has read all the books, and now she's realizing, oh no, like the books leave stuff out. You know, the, hi the history of Hogwarts doesn't mention the house elves at all. So yeah, it's not like, yeah. like that, that comes crumbling down a little bit. Like that's kind of part of her, her whole self-concept is like, I know a lot of stuff because I read a lot of books. Well, oh shoot, like the books don't know as much as maybe someone who 
opens their eyes and, and looks around a little bit at school. So there's that, but then there's also um, her experience with, with the elf um, uh, Winky, right? And, yes. and in that respect, she is kind of like, put, as he's describing, like she's putting a kind of concept over Winky rather than like seeing who Winky actually is and, and what she might actually um, want and need and like how her situation is unique um, with the master that she has and, and how Dobby's situation being who he was and with the master he had was also unique, you know? And so it just like, it's much more complicated than she's able to sort of conceptualize at this point. She's, she's working under like very good intuitions and, and, and motivations, but that, but that her information, as we've seen with lots of things in these stories, right? Her information is not all there yet and she hasn't quite, quite got it together yet. That's great. You know, I, I think, think I, I, I think I see two two great things there. Uh, one, when you say you're, she's putting an idea on Winky. I think you see that's literally the Jungian idea of projecting, and so what she seems to be projecting is her idea of herself onto this house elf. Look how pitiful it would be if I were in that situation. And when she does this, like you say, she doesn't see the complex relationship of the house elf to the person. She imagines essentially what the relationship must be based on this single interaction and develops a narrative based on that in which case this, this house elf is being oppressed rather than investigating the situation, which she could start investigating by going to the kitchens, which is what I think is the sort of point that Fred, George, and Hagrid make. I think they're not making a rational argument in the same way that Hermione is making what I would call a, a rationalist argument, while also uh, I, I would also potentially say, do you think she is projecting this image onto the house elves because she is uh, seeing herself in them as oppressed because she has recently come into consciousness of the fact that she is a mudblood in, uh, or, or by some measures in this world. That in the last book that was sort of brought to light or rather in the second book. And so since the second book, she's been sort of fighting for hybrid creature rights or for the rights of magical creatures. And I wonder if that's because she sort of sees an identity between herself and these, these um, creatures that is both there, but also very much not there in the same way that she might initially uh, presume. Well, so I think it's entirely possible that she's right, that the house elves are oppressed right? Like, I think it's very possible that her intuition is accurate. We're right to point out, like, the flaws maybe in her pattern. Um, and, you know, by saying, like, oh, well, they really like their oppression, I'm really hesitant to, <laughs> to take that argument, because, I mean, that argument was made about slaves, too, and, like, that's, well, that's just kind of uh, ugly, but well, that but, argument but only I, I assumes that they're though, being that, like, oppressed, right? Because it, it hasn't actually been admitted that they're oppressed in Hogwarts. That's been Hermione's assumption. The idea is that they work there. She's always just called them slaves. So we don't yet have confirmation that they are being oppressed and that that's a bit of sort of uh, generous interpretation by Hagrid, Fred, and George, who I would say are not generally the sorts of people who are going to give sort of rose-colored interpretations either. Uh, Fred and George have mapped the, 
the space of that place very well. And Hagrid cares more about every living creature than anybody we know, including Hermione. It's his entire job. So I don't know that putting them in the place of blithe German citizens is, is exactly uh, is exactly appropriate, just because these are not the sorts of people who generally would say that sort of thing lightly. Um, and they do have experience that Hermione lacks at this point. So I think they're pointing the finger at what the next step is, rather than saying that she's wrong. I think she's just moving to the wrong position on the board. And that that's sort of, and I, so I guess I'm agreeing that, that that I think is her problem. And not, not that the house elves don't need help, but that if she is going to help them, she needs to investigate who they really are first. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I, de I definitely agree that like the way that you characterize, like, what do we know of Hagrid and, and Fred and George that they're not, they're not, they don't really have an agenda one way or the other, at least for Fred or George, but Hagrid is deeply caring of living creatures. And I totally take that. I think, maybe that makes it even more obvious than that like what he would want to do is forge relationships like a good you know community organizer yeah. um but like her 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 methods her means are are insufficient to the matter right but like i do think that um that what you were saying earlier is um interesting when you take this particular thread of plot um, as a part of the bigger whole, like um, the like assumptions being made about different kinds of people because of where they come from or what they do or how they look or how they speak. Um, and that like, we've sort of up until this point, like Hermione, there's been nothing that she can't do. Right. right? And nothing that it seems like, she and and it and we're not going to necessarily see her make you know deep and glaring judgments about other people that she has to learn to you know overcome but um but i think it points out that with the with the arrival of these two other groups of people who have different accents and different outfits and different traditions that like um it'd be really easy to think that there's one person who represents them i mean the whole point of the tournament is that there's like one representative from every school but but that like victor crumb isn't all durmstrong students um and karkaroff isn't all um durmstrong teachers and like um, they're not all like one of them doesn't represent Bulgaria. And yet it's right. interesting that like the, like just five or six chapters ago, you had seven athletes who represent, um, their country in a, you know, like it's one thing to wear the flag of your country in an athletic contest. It's another thing altogether to say that you speak for an entire group of people and that like this, this, you know, magical international magical cooperation thing that that they're engaging in is among other things designed to maybe teach them in a lot of different ways the the ease with which we make assumptions about people and like the problems that come from that 
I don't know. I think you're that, nailing it. I think that, you're that nailing. might be a little reductive. Well, no, but that's interesting because the Jungians do say that that is the first way when you meet the unknown that you grasp that which you do not understand. You project an imaginary image, sort of a very a first uh, a first pass approximation, which is very general, like a fairy tale, right? And then you chisel away at that to find the particulars as you come to understand a situation, event, sport, or person, or narrative better. So that's sort of what we're doing in this sort of seminar, right? We have sort of general ideas on themes and some hypotheses at first, but then the sort of structure of the narrative starts to lay itself out in front of our eyes and gets more particular. And I think what you're showing us is that sort of if we want to actually help rather than appear that we're helping, we can't just stop at our projection and say there are bad things. We have to actually develop a sophisticated understanding of a situation and the tools necessary to work within a sophisticated situation because th that's what it's going to take to fix any problem that is that you know that requires a human to fix it because that means a conscious intellect and i, I think i think you're really putting your finger on something here and that uh we all need to get much more sophisticated as thinkers and as doers and as skilled beings to deal with the problems of today rather than to just comment on them uh but yeah wes what do you yeah yeah i really like the point about the um the representative nature of this uh, this kind of theme where um, on the one hand you have Hermione kind of working off of a pretty limited actual like experience with house elves and so doing a lot with a very few um, representatives right and, and then you have this idea that each of the schools is going to be represented by somebody um, the the different uh, heroes or, or you know champions or whatever um, it's, it's always cool to think about how, um, each story kind of has its, its hero, right? And then you, you also can think about like what happens when a bunch of those heroes come into conflict with one another. And that's like something you get with, um, like superhero movies after a while, like there's no more villains for the heroes to fight. So then pretty soon you have the heroes fighting other heroes, you know, for whatever reason. Right. And, and you see this too, with like the, the kind of large scale um, cultural uh, arguments that we get into, like, you know, Western culture and Eastern culture or middle Eastern culture. Right. And, and so then you have like, you, you pit these, these conceptions, these, these representative ideas against one another and um, see what happens with that. Um, we, we get that kind of like dramatized here where, you know, to this point in the, in the story, Harry Potter is clearly the hero. And there's this kind of, there's this odd moment where he sees himself as, as being like rather a small uh, person with respect to the, uh, the initial three champions. Like they're, they're grown up essentially, right? They're, they're basically of age, whereas he's still a kid. Um, that, that idea that, you know, the representative um, needs to grow, needs to sort of develop and, and come into uh, contact with, with others um, to sort of fully um, unfold or something. I found that really, really interesting. Um, and with uh, Hermione's kind of her, her side story here, um, 
I, I'm, I like that as a way to, to see how it kind of connects with the, with, the main, with the main story, right? That she's encountering this problem of needing uh, more experience and Harry is coming into the same kind of problem, although, you know, he hasn't really intended to uh, take this this mantle of of hero on himself this time. It's it's thrust upon him, and he's as surprised as anyone. Um, I, I find that really really interesting. Yeah. Well. Yes. Well, I mean, th and uh, just something I was thinking about a comment you made earlier, Wes. Um, and I recall you being uh, very interested. And this is something we talked about a little bit yesterday with the Final Fantasy VII and six, five, four, three, two, one. The different iterations or clones that dance about the same theme, and how you were sort of taking that line with Harry Potter. It seems so, where you were like, "Man, you know, these first couple books are very similar with some small changes, and some of them seem a bit arbitrary in order just to make a change." And I was wondering whether you felt like that was that the series itself was sort of alchemically transforming in this fourth book and we've been dancing around this theme i think too that it's been going from sort of like kids book that might make some money and could be a series to bang this is a this is the franchise quarterback this is the series book now it has become something bigger than just uh a novel or two about a boy but is now going to take place in sort of a cosmic place there's going to there's going to be a cosmic struggle and it's taking itself seriously. Um, and I wonder if that's, that's almost what the Triwizard Tournament is a metaphor for, that the competition has been accepted, um, or that the arena has been entered by the piece of literature itself too, and that that's what Harry Potter is. This piece of literature attempting to sort of transform the values of a civilization, or at least to represent them to transform itself into that sort of mirror of a civilization. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I could speculate, I guess, that, you know, something actually shifts with the fourth book where maybe Rowling has a bit more control over the final product, you know, she hmm. maybe, you know, feels freer to, um, to write a longer, a more mature story. I'm, I don't know enough about like her statements about her own work or, or other people who have, you know, studied this more. I'm sure they could uh, answer with a little bit more clarity, but, but I do, I, I certainly get that sense at least, you know, from reading it, it does, it does feel like um, a bigger undertaking here and, and in a way like a, a fresh start of the series as well, where um, we kind of saw, yeah, pretty distinct parallels from books one, two, and three which are being um, modified drastically here in book four, uh, where we've kind of unfolded the, the world um, and, and looked at some other aspects of it that were really not there before. We've had some new characters just kind of pop in out of nowhere. And, and so now the cast of characters is way bigger. Um, the setting has expanded drastically. So, so yeah, in lots of ways, uh, it does feel like a much more grandiose kind of thing. And we, you know, coming into it from those cozy first three books, you know, we, we feel a bit disoriented probably as we're like standing in this uh, enormous uh, structure. But, you know, at the same time, um, we're, we're equal to it. Like we can, we can kind of gather our wits and, and proceed 
um, there's there's enough there that we've been kind of uh, given from the first three books. There's enough helps along the way here in the fourth book to kind of um, lead us into it. Now, the more the more interesting thing that sort of occurs to me about that is like, to what end are we being drawn? And I know, I think you guys have both kind of touched on this tonight, like with your discussions of, of service um, within a, a Catholic um, superstructure, right? Like if we're being drawn into this book, like Harry Potter is drawn into the tournament, like to what purpose is that? Um, is there an overarching theological purpose at stake here? Is there an overarching political purpose that the author has? Is she just trying to tell a good story, you know, a, a relevant, uh, uh, an interesting um, story? What, what, is, what is going on here? And this kind of might bring us to like our, our Christmas theme tonight too. Like, I think you were asking Alex if there is such a thing as um, Santa Claus or, or Father Christmas in the wizarding world or, um, or, or Jesus Christ for that matter, right? Because they, they seem to celebrate Christmas, but we don't get a whole lot of religious talk per se. I don't know. Just I to mean, kind of open that can. If I if I could just say that, like, I just to add, um, one of the things we talked about last time was like three being complicated by four, and you know, this is the like we've said, this is the fourth book. I really liked how you phrased it, though, Wes, about like the first three laying out a really complex geography and cast of characters, and it's like maybe something about the fourth one that like sets it in motion, you know, um, that uh, I think of a bunch of things that we read and studied and like worked on at St. John's where, um, you know, you can freeze frame a world or an idea or a problem, but putting it in time and like pressing go and letting it run its course, I think is like, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's much more alive that way. And it's also like, um, it's the middle. And I think there's quite a bit that I've read about like a chiasmic or chiasmic structure of some of these, of, of, of the series where there's like pieces of one and seven that are thematically or linguistically a, a mirror to one another. And the same is true of two and six. Like there's some elements that to echo one another but there would be nothing to echo if that's if that's the case in in book four um it, it's like um it's separate unto itself it's like the center um maybe the, the the crossing point i'm not sure um but i i i think like in and also in term in your in terms of how you phrased your question about like tying this to christmas like just it really seems like um I don't know, I, maybe it's because it's Advent or whatever, but like the idea of, of okay, now things are really getting started is, is sort of what I feel when I read or listen to this book. Like now things are getting serious. Now things are getting grave, like stakes are raised. Um, uh, and it's not that they weren't high in various places in the past, but with this book, it seems like there's, you know, there's problems at every, at every other chapter, um, as opposed to one giant battle at the end. 
and villains villains are emerging in a lot of different places including within the heart of various like seemingly good characters um and um i i just um it seems like things are being incarnate um and that's the word that i keep coming back to that like something that was set out or laid out um outside of time is now being like put in time and like press go and get started. That's perfect. That sounds exactly like what is going to be happening literally at the end of this text. Something is going to become finally embodied, which we have not even been able to put into words. And so the embodiment will actually precede the naming of it, interestingly enough. But y'all, I think this was one of our our best conversations yet, but I suppose we have to end with a Christmas treat, something to fill the stockings of the listeners with. And so this time around, I think we decided that the best gift you can give someone would be a nice little spell like a charm. And our sort of reason behind that as teachers was that what's better than the gift that keeps on giving? And what is better? what is the gift that keeps on giving? Well, a skill that you teach somebody. And so what, if you could either receive or give a charm to someone, so I suppose we have to see whether you're, you're feeling like you're in a giving or a generous mood, um, or, or rather a receiving or a generous mood, uh, what, what would you want the charm to do? I have a certain idea in mind. I'm in a receiving mood as a disagreeable person. And I, I already have a pretty strong idea, but uh, Wes, <laughs> do, you, do you have an idea? My... I think I think I'm interested in the idea of um, of missed opportunities. Just kind of generally, that's like a big. I, I like the idea of of incarnation, um, and for for me that that takes the form of like imagining other possible universes. You know, like if I did this other thing instead of that thing, then there would be a whole different reality now. You know, and and as it stands, it's only there in, in imagination. So if I had, you know, a charm to bestow, I think it'd be something like, you know, getting to, to sort of swap, um, to walk from one, you know, universe into the other universe uh, of these kind of parallel worlds um, that where you get to sort of see what it would have been like if you'd made that other decision somewhere way back when or, or if someone you know, someone prior to your, your own life, you know, had done something different and you'd have this alternate history play out to, to get to kind of, um, you know, in, in some form, uh, uh, pass between those, those parallel worlds. I don't know if you'd get to sort of affect things in them. That might be sort of the, the cost, right? Like you, you lose your, your agency and you just get to sort of go and, and visit them. Um, and you have to come back to your own world ultimately, something like that. Wow, Wes, you really yeah. just took it to that level. That's like one of those sort of truth level items in the world, right? Like For something real, that's a serious gift. Yeah, that's that's like one of the like four primordial items created in the mythology of a world level gift. So well done, <laughs> Wes. I, I'm going to share my my measly little gift in a while, but I'm also going to think of something of mythological, uh, cosmic proportion like that because wow. Very good. It actually makes me think a little bit of Beauty and the Beast, but I suppose that's a little bit different. Or any mirror or thing that shows us 
I suppose, I guess to some extent, this book or any story we look at is sort of a mirror of a different place like that, but still not quite the same way as the world that would be if you had acted in that way. That's, that I think is something I always imagined would be a part of something like a heaven. But yeah, Sarah, so uh, what do you think after, oh, man. Uh, after that? <laughs> well, I'll just go the uh, alternative extreme route, which is like practical charms. Um, also, I, yeah, like if we're talking stocking stuffers, like some, at least in my, in my house, like where you get socks and stuff. Um, um, and because it's December and, um, it's sort of like, uh, a, what I was thinking about was like a, and honestly, I'm sort of thinking on the fly because. I didn't know that this was something we were going to talk about, but whatever. Um, like a, a single use time turner. I know our, oh, cool. like, that's, that's cool. A very, it's a very regulated trick, but I think um, like the ability to, to like once um, get an extra hour of sleep or something like that. And like, it's, oh. Yeah. It's a, uh, it would be like, it would be, uh, you'd, it would be controlled in the sense that like, you'd only have a certain amount of time. Um, and it would, it like the effect of say like falling back every November, but you got like one extra on a weekend. I'm just thinking about like how much I could use that right now. That's um, really cool. And it's like a gift card too. In that yeah. Way. It is like, like you can, you, you can use it when you need it. Right. Um, and you get a yeah. limited amount. I think that's, yeah. that's spectacular limited, yeah. too. Y'all are going to make me look terrible because that's such a cool, like that makes me want that as a gift just because it's such a perfect gift. So y'all have hit the cosmic level gift, <laughs> practical gift. I'm going to give the total specialist desire here. So you know how Rita Skeeter, who we're soon going to see in Up Close and Personal, has a quill that will write her stories for her that seems to embody her personality and rights of its own volition. Well, the quick I mean, quote quill. Yes. I need one of those for grading English essays for my students. Oh my God. That is genius. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I, uh, I also need it to, uh, form a psychic link with me so that I still learn about my students and their personalities and their writing style and how they respond to criticism and how quickly they make adjustments and how and how much they develop over time. Like I still want that feedback and data. I don't want to ignore them, but I want it done automatically. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's like a combination of that that cursed quill. Um, that Harry has to write and it like writes into his hand as he writes, you know, yes. with Rita Skeeter's automatic uh, quick quotes quill. Um, so it's like you're, you're getting it to write automatically. You're also having it inscribed on you. So you never forget it at the same time. Yeah. That would be a really handy thing to have, but the closest God, thing. So handy. Oh my God. Very handy. Copy paste though. I mean like, Let's go. Like you can, you can fill in a lot of things if you get if you get your essays turned in electronically, and then you go through and do a little copy paste. That uh, that's just a thought. 
That's smart. I and use um I I use turnitin.com and I know we're not being sponsored by them, but if we were, it'd be the easiest sponsorship in the world. And they they have like the feedback studio where I basically just drag and drop my common comments like yeah sentence fragment or this isn't well thought out like say more or you need better evidence and I I have like a bank of terms it's it is kind of magic um and it then I, I like type a comment at the it, type a comment at the end but well that's great and y'all may have just given me my my Christmas gift into and asking you shall receive indeed and you know, it does draw people's perspective to your problem when you ask, and that's something well worth knowing, I think, for our listeners. And I think that is the magic of a spell, that that is what a good question does, right? It draws people's attention to something of value, and then they extract additional information. And, well, hopefully, hopefully that's what this is. Even though we're talking about a magical world, this magical world is nested within our very real world, and it seems to be a wonderful whetstone against which uh we're sharpening ourselves and i i think tonight was a fine conversation and um well merry christmas y'all yeah merry christmas i hope talk to you guys again in the new year god bless us everyone <laughs> yeah I'll, ta I'll i'll talk to you guys later <laughs>